Um, young people, you guys want to jump on? Are they gone? They've gone already. Oh, wow, there you go. Well, don't worry about that. Young people are gone. means that the rest of you are older people. That's okay, nothing wrong with that. Father, we just pray this morning, Lord, as we open up your word and as we have a look at what it has to say. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would uh, convert my words into a language that each person here can understand. Help us to walk away uh, with a greater understanding of who you are, of who we are, God, of how we should see you, how you see us, and how this whole interaction works between this natural world we live in and the spiritual world and the dynamics of the kingdom that we read about in the word of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been talking for a few weeks now about this whole area of giving. Um, we have some guests here, so I'll just preface by saying that uh, me and my wife have pastored this church now for two years, over two years, whatever, um, and I've avoided this topic immensely because I don't like talking about uh, finance in church. Having said that, God has been doing something in my life and I've had to repent before this congregation Uh, it's not fair or it's not right that I don't at least talk about that issue. Uh, I would be holding back a a, a large amount of what Jesus taught if I didn't touch on that. So it's been a long process. I I flagged to the church six months ago that one day I'm going to start to speak about it. One day, one day, and one day arrived a couple of weeks ago. So we're just spending a few weeks talking about giving and finance and going down that path. And so you've sort of popped in here today on the second last of that that little series that we're doing. So uh, just so you know, we're not... um, The very reason why I don't like doing it is because uh, I think uh, that we've had a lot of poor examples in in the Christian church uh, of of extremes of financial prosperity and extremes. But just because we have extremes in one area doesn't mean that we totally avoid that area. Otherwise, what happens is we're extremists ourselves just on the other end of the pendulum. So we're trying to, as a congregation, as a church, and me as a pastor, find a balance in all of that. Uh, my second preface, again, and I say this every week, I do not take a percentage of the tithes and offerings in the church and I do not get a wage increase when people give more. It's set by people outside of me, above me. That's how that all works. Uh, for the first year and a half we passed it here, I was actually a full-time uh, manager down at Dan Murphy's in Ballina. So I, my customers would say, you pedals one spirit for six days and another spirit for the other, and that was the joke that the customers would say. But about a year ago now, uh, we felt like that we had to make a decision. We just couldn't do both. And so the movement approached us and said, here's what we can do. And so that's why we're doing what we do now. We started a few weeks ago by looking at Genesis chapter 14. And we went back and we just, all we've been doing is we looked at the very first mention of tithing in the Bible. The very first time the word tithe is mentioned. And in Genesis 14, we see that it's, it's mentioned in relation to Abraham giving a tenth of his increase from a, a battle that he went out to, giving a tenth of the increase to a dude called Melchizedek. Now, if we go back without backtracking, if you, if you want to know a bit of background, go back for the last two, three weeks. If I listen to our podcasts on iTunes, you can hear that. But um, from now, we're going to go forward with that. But Abraham, in that whole process of giving to Melchizedek, there are three principles that we pulled out of that. We, if you want to know anything about a, a, a particular topic or so on, biblically, the best place to start is in the beginning. Go back to the first time that thing is mentioned in the Bible. You'll get a basic foundational precepts and principles about that. That particular topic upon which uh, subsequent mentions will build complexities into that understanding but you'll get a basic understanding by going back to the beginning so that's what we did we went right back to Genesis chapter 14 
When Abraham first uh, gave uh, the first time the tithe is mentioned in the Bible, it says in verse uh, uh, 18 to 20, it says, Then Melchizedek in Genesis 14, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, was a priest of God. Uh, he came and he said, Blessed be Abraham, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your, hands, your enemies into your hands, and Abraham gave him a tithe. And out of that, we've been talking about three basic principles we get out of this. The first one is that Abraham gave voluntarily. This was three to six hundred years before tithing became a part of the law. A long time before. So people who say we don't need to tithe or give anymore, we're not under law. Uh, I agree we're not under law, but tithing was never given under law to begin with. So we've talked about uh, it being voluntary. The second thing was that he gave systematically. Abraham, the Bible says he gave him a tithe of all. It didn't say he gave him some or he gave him a bunch of stuff or he gave him some undisclosed amount. The scripture writer was very specific in saying there was an actual system to what he did. He gave 10%. That's what tithe means. It means 10%. If, it not a, you know, it wasn't, if he gave 20%, it wouldn't have been called a tithe, a twive it would have been or something. But, but it's 10% because 10% literally means tithe. When we read the word tithe, it's a percentage. It's 10%. And the third thing is that he gave gratefully. He gave gratefully. And we know that because he gave in response, he gave gratefully. What are you laughing at, Rob? <laughs> um, uh, Luke, Luke, you misspelled gratefully, mate. Look. Rule number one, if you're going to be a tech dude on screens, please. That's one mistake in two and a half years, though. You're not going bad. You're not fired. You keep your position there, mate. He gave gratefully. He gave gratefully with two L's. He gave gratefully with two L's. And as we looked in that, um, that passage here, we see these three basic principles. Giving is to be voluntary, it's to be systematic, and it's to be done gratefully. And so what we've done is we've been going from there, jumping across the ages into the New Testament, and trying to have a look at the New Testament and go, well, if these principles are really principles of giving, as in voluntary, systematic, and gratefully, then surely they must cover right through the Testaments into the New Testament. And I believe that it does. What I want to talk about today, last week we went back and we looked at what the New Testament said about voluntary giving, and we covered some ground there. Today I want to focus on we give systematically, giving systematically. Now I do this with a bit of fear and trepidation because I know that everybody has their own opinions about giving and everybody has their own opinions about tithing and I'm not standing here saying that my opinion and my conclusion is the exclusive conclusion and everybody has to do it the way I do it or everybody has to believe things the way I believe. I, every time I get up here and preach I've said to you many times you need to go back to the word of God, you need to look at the word of God and you need to make sure that what I'm saying lines up with that and if it doesn't line up with that then throw that tape out the window, don't believe it, don't listen to it. But every preacher that you ever hear is going to preach out of his own sense of conviction and his own sense of understanding. And our convictions evolve and our understanding evolves. So what I'm sharing with you today, I'm not standing here going, this is it, rubber stamped, God, you can't change it. What I'm giving you today is my own understanding of giving systematically in a New Testament context based on my study of the Word of God. So I'm going to do something I normally don't do. I'm going to glue myself a little bit to to my notes today. Normally I don't do that, but I'm going to glue here because I want to make sure that I give you the scriptural references and that we go on this journey somewhat systematically as we talk about systematic giving. So Abraham gave systematically. And so I want to look at that from a New Testament perspective. He did not give randomly. It doesn't say that uh, Abraham just gave randomly or he gave him something. 
It's very specific, and it says that he gave systematically. Later on, it's interesting, the second time tithing is mentioned in Genesis 24, it talks about Jacob giving. And uh, if you go back and you have a look at that story, Jacob is a little bit different. Abraham gave, and he gave because of what God had done for him. If you go back and you read that, Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes out and goes, you're blessed by God, God's done this, this, this for you, and out of response to what God had done for him, Abraham gave. Jacob comes along in Genesis 24, the second time it's mentioned, and Jacob does a bit of a deal with God. He flips it around a little bit and says, well, God, here's the deal. If you look after me, if you do this, if you do that, and he looks into the future, he goes, if you do something for me, then I will show generosity and I will give you a tenth of everything you give to me. Abraham didn't have that approach. Abraham said, looked around at his world and said, I'm blessed. I'll acknowledge the blessing that's here now, and based on where I am now, I'll give. Jacob said, no, no, God, you take me to a blessed place, and then I'll start to give. And what's interesting is it's not long after that that God, I wonder whether God took Jacob at his word and said, rightio, then let's do it that way. So we'll now bring this whole thing under law and I'll do for you and you have to do for me and it became a legal transaction instead of maybe a handshake deal. I don't know, I'm just, just hypothesising in my brain. But it's irrelevant for today. So he gave systematically. Now, when I talk about systematically, I mean there was a system and there was a structure to it. I still believe, and I'll be up front right here, I still believe that tithing is relevant in a New Testament context. I still believe in that. Now, I don't believe in it as a law. I don't believe it as a legal obligation before God. But I do believe that the principle of tithing is still very relevant to us in terms of our interaction with God and in terms of God's decision and God's desire to want to get involved in the financial aspect of our life too. So I want to unpack a little bit of that today um, as we go through a bit of the New Testament. Now, first of all, tithing is only mentioned twice by Jesus, right? Jesus only talked about tithing twice. So let's have a really quick look at those two passages of Scripture. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. It's Jesus, it's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it goes like this. Uh, Jesus spoke this parable to some of them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So what he's about to talk about tithing had something to do with this issue of self-righteousness, trusting in yourself thinking that you can make yourself right before God by your own righteous actions or deeds or whatever. So that's the context into which we need to read the rest of what he's talking about. He spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves, they're righteous and despised others. Moving on into verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And there's the mention of the word tithes. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The context of tithing here is this Pharisee going, because I give to you, God, I am justified before you by the actions that I do. Because I, and the focus too, if you read the, read the scriptures, not just about what he does, he spends a lot of time focusing on what he doesn't do as well. The whole thing is a works-based transaction. He's going, because I do the good works and I don't do the bad works, I'm better than this dude over here. 
This other dude over here is going, you know what, I'm, when I, if, if I actually pick up the true scales by which I measure myself, those true scales are God. So the Pharisees over here picking up human scales going, well, let's weigh ourselves on a human level. If I stand next to this person over here, man, I'm so much better than you and I don't do what they do and you should hear some of the stuff they do behind the scenes and blah, 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 and I do this and I don't do that and I stay away from. Therefore, God, I'm more justified. But I'm weighing myself on human scales. The tax collector is weighing himself on God's scales going, you know what, we're all going to be found wanting in the end. None of us are going to be justified by our works. In no way, shape or form is Jesus denouncing tithing or saying tithing is not right or you shouldn't do it. If that's the case, then I hope none of you fast either because fasting, he said the same thing. Fasting would now become irrelevant in the New Testament context, yet I don't know any single preacher, any book I've read, anyone saying that fasting no longer has an impact or a benefit to us. So you can't take half out and... Keep the other half in, it's all or nothing. Jesus is saying here that tithing, giving, not saying it's wrong, he's simply saying that it's not going to justify you before God. You can't buy your way into heaven. In the same way that you can't good work your way into heaven either. That's the context in which Jesus is saying this. Now the second time that Jesus mentions it, we get a little bit more of perhaps a definitive uh, answer to the question of did Jesus teach tithing? Did he agree with it? Did he not? Matthew 23 and verse 23, and Jesus says this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He's having a bit of a go at these self-righteous people that elevated themselves and said, we're better than everybody else. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin. Now remember, you go back to the Old Testament, the society was different to today. They were what was called an agrarian society. The Jewish nation were, were agrarian. In other words, they were agricultural. They lived on the land. So a lot of what they tithed was not like today. They didn't go to an ATM machine, swipe a card, get 20 sheaves of barley and give two sheaves of barley to, to God. It was a different setup and a different context in the world in which they lived. But that agrarian uh, landscape provided their income. It provided their sustenance. A little bit similar to me in a modern day going to work when I used to go to Dan Murphy's, I would give them my hours and they would give me money. I would get my sustenance from that money. I would buy my food, pay my rent, look after my family and so on. So the context is, is the same, is different, sorry, but the principle is the same. He says, you pay tithe, mint, anise and cumin and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And then watch this. These you ought to have done. What should you have done? He's saying you should have done justice, mercy, and faith without leaving the other undone. So if I have to go to Jesus and go based on the New Testament and what he said, I'm leaning more towards the fact that Jesus said, you know what? The principle of tithing is not outdone with in a New Testament context. He's got a perfect opportunity here to say to these people, unequivocally, put it in the New Testament so that none of us barter back and forth. There's no books written about it. Churches divided over it. People leaving churches over this issue. He could have drawn a clear line in the sand and just simply said to us all, tithing's under the law, it's gone. But he can't. First of all, because he knows we're smart enough to know, the Holy Spirit made it very clear, tithing was not instigated under law. Therefore, it's not done away with with law. And he also makes it very clear that Jesus doesn't say, you shouldn't be tithing, this is stupid. You don't need to do this anymore. And, and if people interpret it that way, can somebody please tell me what other teachings did Jesus give that had a three-year use-by date on them? I'm going to tell you right now, you should be tithing, but when I die, you won't have to do that anymore. Now, it would not have been hard for one of the writers of, 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 of Scripture to put that in as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. If we truly believe that the word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Then when we hypothesize things in and out, we've got to do it from that basis. 
The writers of Scripture were moved upon, the Bible tells us, by the Holy Spirit. Why is this put in here? It's not only Matthew put it in, but Luke records the same story. Twice in two of the Gospels it's recorded, and it's a very clear admonition where Jesus is saying, you're doing this, you're not doing that, you should be doing that, but still keep doing this. Here's a chance for him to say no. Scrap that whole thing, it's gone. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Now, there are a lot of ideas and thoughts out there and arguments about tithing. One of the ones I hear very clearly is people saying that the New Testament doesn't say a lot about it. Well, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I don't always go to my kids on a school day and say, put your uniform on. I don't need to because it's part of their life culture already. So I don't need to go back over ground. I'm assuming that coming from their cultural background, they know when they wake up in the morning, you've got to be on a bus at at 8 o'clock, so you've got to get dressed for school. So there are certain things that I don't need to keep communicating to my children. Yet when they first started school, we used to wake them up, you'd make their lunch, you'd get them dressed. That might go on for a couple of years, but I'll tell you this, for more years than not, I don't have to do that anymore because it's part of their cultural upbringing. They know that these things need to be done. So... One way that we can look at it is, why did Jesus not say a lot about it? Well, because it was already a part of the Jewish culture anyway. It was something they did. So he didn't come in and say, don't do it anymore. But he didn't carry on about it because he was bringing in some new ideas. He's bringing in some new perspectives on culture that they had. Remember this, Jesus never said, I came to destroy the law. He said, I came to fulfill it. Think about certain statements that Jesus said. He said, you have heard it said that if you... If you take another's life, you're guilty of murder. Anyone remember Jesus saying that? And then he goes on and he goes, but I want to expand on that a bit into a New Testament concept. If you hate somebody, you're as guilty as murder. What did he do at that point? He took the the, the physical act of murder and he basically put it as the floor, not the ceiling. It's not the pinnacle. It's not because it it doesn't start here. It starts here. So he creates a floor and says, right, you've heard it said this is the pinnacle. I'm flipping it around and going, that's not the pinnacle anymore. That's the minimum requirement. Because why? Because it starts all up here. I want to go into your heart now and I want to have a look at some other things because it's not just about that end result. You thought, oh, I can hate your guts, be angry at you and everything like that. As long as I don't kill you, God's happy with me. And he says, well, that's changed. In a legal contract, yeah, you can get away with that perhaps in a legal context. But we don't have a legal relationship anymore. We've got a relationship. So I want to get inside your world and let's talk about some of these things because you're just as guilty. He says, you've heard it said that if you sleep with another man's wife or husband, you've committed adultery. And they go, yep, that's right. So as long as I don't do that, I can think what I want, insinuate what I want, float around a little bit. As long as I don't do the act, I'm fine. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to move your ceiling and make it a floor. And I'm going to say, if you lust after somebody else in your heart, you're guilty of it. So if you're carrying on with that, let's talk about that. Because we're in a relational relationship now. It's not a legal contract anymore where you can get away with thinking and doing it. No, it's a relationship here. So it's almost like he takes the ceilings and he makes them floors. And he does that a little bit too if you look at the tithe in the New Testament. That's the way I view it. Is that he kind of took it, because people, people say these things like Jesus didn't say a lot about it. Well, he did say a few things, and if, if, you, if you want to say that Jesus didn't talk a lot about it, then I want you to have the same passion when you go back to what did Jesus say about it. And I read very clearly there Jesus encouraging a bunch of people that he didn't particularly get on with, but he acknowledged, you're doing something good here. 
You're not this, you're not showing mercy, but you're talking, look, you're doing something right. I don't see anywhere there where we can say Jesus came and said we don't tithe anymore. I can't find it in Scripture anywhere. Myself, personally, if you can find it, I'm happy for you to bring the passage to me and show me, and uh, we can explore that a little bit together. A lot of people say that, that, that Jesus doesn't say much about it, and yet here is something very clear. If I have to lean towards a yes or a no, I, I hear an endorsement from Christ to the people that, no, you know, there's nothing wrong with tithing. It's okay. If tithing was only valid before the cross, then what other teachings of Jesus are no longer valid? What other things did he endorse that are now no longer valid after he died? How much stuff, what, what weight, what percentage of scriptural teaching from Christ can we throw out the window because it was said before he died? And I hear people say this, oh, but that was all Old Covenant, Old Testament. Well, look, you can look at it that way, but my question stands. What other teachings of Christ are Old Testament, Old Covenant in that middle period where when he died on the cross we can do away with it? I, is anyone bold enough to take a marker and run their marker through a whole bunch of other teachings in their Bible? I'm not. I'm not. Because I don't believe it. There are also people who use the early church's example of selling everything. And they'll go back to the book of Acts and they'll go, in the early church they sold everything, they gave everything away. And they'll use that as a basis to say, see, there's no such thing as a tithe anymore. No such thing as 10%, you just give everything away. The funny thing is, usually people that argue for that haven't given everything away themselves. They're still hanging on to, hanging on to stuff. But I hear this, you know, that, that, that when early church was instigated, you don't see 10%. You just see people giving everything away. And, 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 and I, I read online this week while I was doing a bit of research and stuff, I read a story and the guy was saying this. He was saying, well, because in the New Testament everything belongs to God and I endorse that, it does. It's 100%. My whole life belongs to God. My time, my entire finance belongs to God. But he does a bit of a deal with this because he's very clear. He's smart. We'll look at that in a second. But my, everything belongs to God. And so... People who, who, this guy said, everything belongs to God. Therefore, when I pay my children's school fees, I'm giving it to God because my kids belong to God. And when I take my neighbour out to dinner, well, my neighbour belongs to God, so technically I'm giving that to God. And, when I, and he went through a list of things, and I thought, geez, for some people, giving God everything sounds really much like giving God nothing. Doesn't it? Because you're still 100% in control of it all. You can still make the decisions about what you want to do. And again, like we looked at last week, you give voluntarily. But please don't use the early church, the fact that they sold everything and gave everything as an argument against tithing. Again, it's paper thin, and I just can't find uh, anywhere else in Scripture where that argument is supported. Let me get rid of that there. See, I think that Jesus took a what was in the Old Testament a bunch of ceilings, and he made them floors. He brought them down and said, no, no, this is now a base marker that we build upon for life and godliness. This is a base marker that we build upon. There are some people who say God owns everything. He does. But here's the point, you don't. I own everything. It means I control everything. But you see, when I understand that God owns everything, if that's really true, that God owns everything, then that means that I don't own everything. There's a part of, of what I have that's not mine. And that's where the tithe came in in regards to our increase in regards to our finance and so on. Now, having said that, I want you to go real quickly with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. Now, we're, now we've got Paul writing to a Gentile audience. Okay? 
So we're looking at a Jewish audience, and I can understand Jesus not going on too much about it because it was entrenched in their culture. Now, if you want to go into the book of Acts and have a look at the disciples, you'll see they went to temple as was their custom. They continued a lot of their customs. It's not like they woke up one day and the entire religious landscape was totally different. They went from one religion to a totally new religion. They continued some of their practices and so on. Okay? Not everything about Judaism was bad. Not everything was evil and not everything was done away with. Culturally, over time, as the gospel went into other places, different cultures adapted the principles of, of Christianity and, and we do things a bit differently. When we lived in India, we never did church like this. We would never hire a building and set a sound system. You know? my, 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 my best experiences in church in India were sitting on a poo floor with a candle and one person had a Bible and having an interpreter sit there and having cows and chickens walking around. And, and, and no electricity and nothing. And then when we did our worship, it was just a constant... There was no system in my mind or anything to it, but I saw people just connecting with God and just loving and worshipping Jesus. You know? Getting the same end results, speaking to the same God, but culturally taking it across to what's relevant for them and so on. Now... When Paul's writing here, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, he's speaking to a Gentile audience. So all of a sudden we're speaking to an audience that has a religious background, but it's not Judaism. So they're not accustomed to the tithes and so on. Although just about every religion in the world back in Jesus' day had some form of offering of their sustenance to their God. Okay? Here's what Paul writes. Concerning the collection for the saints. Now we've talked a bit about this. This is... Paul going around to the Gentile churches going, your Jewish brothers are struggling. There's a famine and they're running out of food and money in Jerusalem. And so if you Gentiles will give to them, that'll really show them that you're, you're bound in with them. Because they're still wondering, the Jews are still going, Gentile believers, we're still not 100% sure, oh, they should be circumcised, they should be this. And, and Paul is very smart and goes, look, if you give of them of your money, nothing speaks louder than money, does it? If you guys will take this up and take it into a man, that's going to really tell them you're on board with these dudes. So here's what he says. It's interesting. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia. So what he's about to say to them, he said this to a whole bunch of other churches. This is the system. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, what does it sound like? On the first day of the week. Sounds a bit like church day, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like a system. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay aside something. Now, here's the interesting thing again. Lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper. In other words, what I'm asking you to put aside is in direct relationship to your prosperity. He's not saying everybody put $50 across. He's saying, no, 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 because you might earn three shekels and you earn, Rob over here is a farmer, he earns a billion shekels. And then you got, you know, then you got, um, you know, people earning all kinds of different shekels and stuff. And he goes, I'm not telling you how many shekels to give because as we've talked about before, it's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. So he says, here's the thing, on the first day of the week, on church day, lay aside something. What do we lay aside? It'll be in proportion and relation to how you have prospered in the week. What does it sound like? It sounds a lot to me like he's talking about a tithe. Now, is the word tithe mentioned there? No. It's not mentioned there. But I'm hypothesizing and looking at this that he didn't just say, whenever you want to and whatever you want, just do it. There's a system that he's implementing to their giving. Where do we think the early church got their financial resource from? See, in the Old Testament, the tithe had three purposes. One was to support the workers in the temple. Two was to support the upkeep of the temple. And thirdly, it was to support the ministry that came out of the temple. That was basically it. 
Now, if I translate that across to a New Testament concept, I would say that it's fairly similar. That tithes will support the ministers in the temple. Pastors get paid. We have bills and things that we, like everybody else does. And I'm, I'm happy to go back to Dan Murphy's and work alongside. I don't have a problem doing that. But I'll tell you what, you get a lot less out of pastors when they've got to be doing all that. And, and you can burn yourself out like anybody can. Anyone, any one of you go and work two jobs, it's tiring. And this is a, a job. We put our time and energy into it. And as pastors do all around the place. I can speak freely with integrity because I've done both. I've worked with a mission agency for years with no, no salary, just praying, believing God and trusting God and so on. So we pay those that work in the temple. We're the upkeep of the temple. How many of you know that, 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 that we pay for this building? It's what we do. They don't, the GSAC, Lismore Council didn't ring me and go, you guys are starting a church? Excellent. We can't wait. We've been wanting a church in the GSAC for so long. It's not funny. Would you guys come and do it? Yeah, of course we will. It doesn't work like that. We'll give you free power, give you the building for free, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll just load you up with all this stuff. It doesn't happen like that. This building we've got, we've got an amazing deal on it. But guess what? We pay rent on it. We've got to fit it out. Guess what happens when a light bulb blows in that new place? Guess what's going to happen? We're going to have to either replace it or start using candles. We'll probably replace it. Why would I not use candles? Probably because it's not cultural. People are walking in trying to find a church or walking in off the street and they saw a bunch of us sitting around with candles and one Bible. What do you think they do? I know what I'd be doing. Close the door. Be taken off. Weird. Because it's not my cultural context for church. And then on top of that, we want to do things in the community. We have said from day one, we're here for a purpose and a reason. And it's not just to get fat together and to be happy together and start a Christian club. We want to reach people for Jesus Christ. And I know that a lot of people sit back because I've been on this journey. And those of you that have been to this church for a long time know our journey. I know people sit down, they go, oh, you don't need a building to do that and you don't need money to do that. You know what? No, you don't. But everyone that sits there and lectures me about that, I look them in the eye and say, but what are you doing? Oh, who are you leading to Christ? Who are you discipling right now? What, what are you trying to do to reach the poor? What are you doing to care about people outside? And most of these people don't have an answer. We're just sitting together in little clubs, patting each other on the back, talking about what's wrong with the church. I've, I, I, I'm saying that because I've done it. I've done it myself. And one day you wake up and go, geez, I've really entrenched myself as part of the problem now, haven't I? Better get back in and become part of the solution. Do something positive for the kingdom of God. So he says here to these at the start of the week, give as you prosper. There's a system to giving. And I see that system through the New Testament and I see that system in Paul's teaching and I see that system in Jesus' preaching as well. Now, to finish up, and I'm, like I said, I've got one more week I want to do on this. Next week we want to look at gratefully, giving gratefully. And that's the part I'm really hanging to get to because that's what excites me, is giving with a good heart and a good attitude because attitude is very important to God, not just what we do but why we do it. God's really interested in that stuff. Is that right? It's really interesting that. So finishing up, I want to go back and I want to have a quick look at what we... I'm going to say this now and everyone's going to go, here we go. Malachi, the great Italian prophet Malachi. We're going to go back and we're going to have a look at Malachi chapter 3 in the Old Testament. Now why am I going back to the Old Testament? Well, I'm talking about the New Testament. Well, I'm going back for several reasons. The first reason I'm going back is because it's the most popular passage that you will hear preached in churches in the West when it comes to tithing and giving. Malachi chapter 3, do not rob God, will a man rob God? We all know that one. The second reason why is because it's very interesting to me. If I was to kiss my wife goodbye today and say, I'm going to go away for 430 years and I'll see you in 430 years, I reckon I'd choose my words wisely. Wouldn't you? If you're going to be absent and not speak to somebody for that many years, 
you would think wisely about your last message to that. She's giving me the death stare. I would, honestly. I, I wouldn't even not talk to you for that long. How could I do that? Terrible. Not that silly. 430 seconds of silence is difficult. <sighs> Cop that one. Um, it's my birthday, remember, tomorrow. Um, 430 years. So, so Malachi speaks to the nation of Israel, and after Malachi speaks, there's a 430-year period between the end of the Old and the beginning of the New Testament. And during that 430 years, God is relatively silent. I'm not saying that we don't know whether God still spoke to individuals and, and so on as they prayed and spent time with them. What we know is in terms of God's recorded history of what he wants us to know as the Holy Spirit moved upon these people, he doesn't want us to know what was said in those 430 years. It's probably fairly insignificant on a global missional scale. But what he says at the very end must be something of significance. And he starts, he starts this way. If you go to Malachi chapter 3, he starts off in Malachi chapter 1 by pinpointing what was the problem. In Malachi chapter 1, he says to the nation of Israel that you have grown weary, you have grown weary in giving to me. And from that launch pad, he moves on and he begins to rebuke Israel for a few things. He says, you priests have dropped the bundle. You know, they were, they, they were trading in their wives for younger models. That's part of what he's rebuking them for. The priests back then, because God's law was being thrown off and there was no restraint, they were actually trading their older women in and getting younger models for wives. This is what the priests were doing in the temple. They were defaming the temple of God. People were bringing sacrifices to him. And they were bringing sacrifices that you would not give to a human person. God rebukes them. He says, what is going on here with the sacrifices? You're bringing lambs, chickens and goats to me. You wouldn't even dare give to a human king. Remember the law? Give without blemish and perfect. They're bringing all kinds of lame and weak animals. And God's going, you know what? You, have, you, you guys have dropped the bundle big time on this whole thing. You forgot who I am. And you forgot who you are. And this is the context into which Malachi speaks. And in Malachi chapter 3, we have this massive passage just before the close of it where he talks about tithes and offerings. In verse 6, he says this. He says, I'm the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O Jacob, my sons of Jacob. In other words, if I was to change my stripes, I would mess with you big time. The only reason you're still surviving is because of my grace and my mercy and because I haven't changed. I made a covenant with you people that I would sustain you. And that's the only reason why you're still here. Don't think you're here because you're doing the right thing by me or because you're nailing it because you're definitely not right now. He says, I am the Lord, I oh God, I don't change. He says, yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances. You've not kept them. And then he says this, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? They say to God, in what way shall we return? It's an interesting answer. He answers that with another question. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. How many of you know you can't rob something of someone unless they rightfully own it? Is that a basic premise of robbery? Robbery is taking something that rightfully belongs to somebody else. That's a basic premise of robbery. Um, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. I don't want to go into great detail about this, but in the time, uh, Old Testament, tithes and offerings were two different things. Your tithe was your basic, if I want to translate it across, your basic 10%, your bottom, your floor. 
And then anything above that was offerings. The tithes had a specific purpose. Offerings could be used for all kinds of things, the building of the temple. The, I mean, those of you that have been here for a while now, we took up, uh, we've only ever taken up one offering in context of this church, and that was for the fit-out for the building. And that money was taken specifically for a task. It goes separately, only get used for that task, not getting used for other things that didn't come out of your tithes because the tithes are there for a specific purpose. But he mentions here, you've robbed me in two fronts, tithes and offerings. But then what's interesting is when he goes on from here, he drops the offering off. He goes, don't worry about the offering because that's all free will stuff. But I want to talk to you about the tithe because that's not. You've robbed me. And this is what he has to say. He says, will a man rob God? Yet You have robbed me, but you're saying, what way have we robbed? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation, the whole nation was doing it. He says this, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Now again, without going into great detail, go and read your Bible commentaries, go and talk to theologians and Bible scholars. The the, the equivalent in the New Testament to an Old Testament storehouse is the local church. Now I spent 12, 13 years working for a parachurch organisation, so I'm not bagging them. Um, I love what they do, they're fantastic and, and, and they're great. But what I'm saying is in regards to the tithe of the people, the storehouse is your local church. So if I support missionaries or something, I bring my tithe to my church. And yes, I tithe to this church. I bring my tithe to this church and I want to do something on top of that. I give offerings and I might support other things. But my opinion is that my tithe belongs here. This is the place where I come. This is my storehouse. This is where I get fellowship with you people. This is where I learn from you people. This is where I get challenged. This is where I grow. This is who I go to if I need prayer support and help. Is you people. So this is my storehouse. He says, Bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Watch this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, there will be not room enough to receive it. Windows of heaven, that phrase is only used twice in the whole Old Testament. Once here, the only other time is when God flooded the earth. The only other time you find that phrase in the whole Old Testament, when God opened the heavens and released the water. Now, to an agrarian or agricultural society, that's key to success and prosperity. If you don't have rain, you don't have prosperity. If you don't have rain coming down, you ain't going to grow crops to sell at markets or to feed your family. You're not going to have crops to feed your herds, to keep them alive. If you take the rain away, you're in all sorts of trouble. And he says that here's what I will do. I will open for you the windows of heaven and pour out such blessing, there'll be not room enough to contain it, to receive it. Keep going, look. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit and so on. Here's what God is saying. He's saying to the nation, right now, you are living in the context of a whole bunch of uncontrollables. And I'm standing outside those uncontrollables. If you will bring your tithe back to me, and you will start the tithe, here's God's promise to the nation. He says, I will get involved in the uncontrollables of your life. Israel couldn't control the weather, but God says, I can. And when you bring the tithe to me, it's your way of saying, I trust you, God, and I want to invite you to be a part of this aspect of my life. He says, I will get involved in the uncontrollables. He goes on, he says, that, you know, that I'll rebuke the devourer for your sake. The devourer back then, he's talking about the swarms of locusts and the bugs that would fly across the field and would devour whole fields of crops, just like that. Now, I don't know about you, but if you want to stop that, you've got two choices. You either stand there with a fly squatter on each hand as 50 billion locusts come your way and see how many you can get, and then turn around, and by the time you turn around, your crops are gone. Or God says, here's the other option. Let me get involved in your financial prosperity. Bring your tithe to me, and I will control the uncontrollables. I will put a hedge there, and I'll make sure them locusts are blown another direction. I'll make sure they don't touch you. He says, the vine shall not fail to bear fruit for you in the field. 
Other translations say your grapes will not fall to the ground. Now you've got two choices there, he's saying. You've got your vineyards there and they're beautiful and they've got great luscious grapes. Now here's your options. You can grab a thing of sticky tape and run around and as soon as you see one about to come off, tape it back onto the stem, make sure it doesn't fall. Or you can bring your tithe to me and release me and invite me into your financial world and let me go about and control those uncontrollables and I'll make sure that those grapes don't fall to the ground and it's not, your, your prosperity does not get devoured. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who don't tithe. And you hear this all the time. I don't understand why I can't get ahead. I've got X amount of money and blah, blah. But you know what? Every time I feel like I'm getting on top of it, the washing machine blows up. Or just when I get on top, the the car tyres popped on me. Or just when I think I'm on top. And every time we feel like we've got enough to get ahead, something uncontrollable happens in our world. And there it goes, there it goes, there it goes. And some people are like that. They live like that and they're never able to get ahead, even though on the natural it looks like they have enough. I believe this is part of what God is saying. When you tithe, it's an invitation to God. Now, you can go back through the Bible and see God's invitations were always more than just verbal. You watch when God gives people invitations. If my people humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn over the way, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll come and heal their land. Why didn't God just say, just pray and ask me and I'll do it? He said, because my invitations are two-part. One, it's what you say. Secondly, it's what you do. You put those two things together, you invite me into something. I want you to humble yourself and pray, but I want you to turn from your wicked way and seek my face. You do those two things, I'll get involved and come. And I believe it's like that, just in closing, with our giving. I believe it's like that with our giving. We can pray and say, God, get involved in my financial world. God, I want you to bless me. God, and God's going, you know, it's my heart to do that. I want to do that. But that's one part of the invitation. Will a man rob God? I want you to show me that you trust me with more than words by bringing that 10% and giving it to me. And put yourself in a position where you're actually out of control of that. You see, part of the reason why people don't want to tithe is we want to stay in control of it all and we want to tell God where it will go and then tack God's name on it and go, well, God, because I gave it to this good, worthy cause, that's as good as giving it to God. And I think, I just don't see that. I even see in the New Testament people that say, but the, that, you know, the early church sold everything and so on. Yeah, but don't finish the verse there. They sold everything, then they went and placed it at the apostles' feet. What were they doing? Saying, it's now out of my control. It's now out of my control. God, I trust you. Because it's out of my control. I believe in tithing. And I believe in the blessing of God. And I'll finish with the end of this. He says, I rebuke the devourer for your sake, so he'll not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine bear fruit for you in the field. Here's the reason why I'm passionate about this and getting more and more passionate about it as I study and research and get before God. Verse 12 says, And all the nations will call you blessed. That word in the Hebrew literally means happy, prosperous, successful, and contented. Who doesn't want to be happy, prosperous, contented, and successful? And by the way, you're not saying this about yourself. The nations are saying this about you. Other people are saying about you. He says, all the nations will call you blessed, for you'll be a delightful land. There'll be something about the blessing of God upon you. And I'm not sitting here saying that God will give you a billion dollars. Don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is whatever it is that God does in your world as we step out in obedience in this area, I believe it's to others. He says the nations will see it. They, they won't call you blessed if they can't see something. There's something about that blessing upon you. And I'm not saying you're driving a Jaguar and you know, wearing $7,000 suits. The blessing of God is so much more than just that. 
That's what I believe, and that's the exciting thing for me to be a part of a community that give, is the stories and the miracles. I was lucky enough to spend 12 years in an organisation called Youth with a Mission. I could stand here for days, weeks, and just tell you story after story of people who had nothing but still were committed financially to giving and to being generous and to, to, to tithing and so on and hear the stories of how God would get involved in their world to the point now where their faith is so strong that it wouldn't matter whether they had a dollar to their name this week, they'd still give 10, 10 cents because they so believe in this principle. I'll finish with a quote I came across from Billy Graham. Billy Graham said this. He said, We have found in our own house, as have thousands of others, that God's blessing upon the nine-tenths when we tithe helps it go farther than the ten-tenths without his blessing. And I don't know about you, but I'll stand here today and say that I'm prepared to test God in that. And... Everywhere else in scripture, Jesus stands on the edge of a precipice and goes to, the devil says, jump off. And he says, you know, you don't test the Lord your God, don't tempt him. Here's the one invitation from your heavenly father. God is so serious about this and God is so committed to this and God is so confident that he can do what he says he will do that you find in the word of God, him actually saying to human people, I want you to test me in this. And I want to leave that challenge with you here today. I don't know who, what you do, whether you tithe, whether you don't. I want to say one of two things. Number one, if you are convinced that tithing is right, then my challenge to you is this. Then do it. Do it. Test God. Test God. Like I said, I'm not getting anything out of this, but test God for your own benefit, for the increasing of your own faith, for your own ability to trust him, for your own testimonies, to share with other people when they're questioning, why would I trust your God? Well, let me tell you, this is what my God does for me. This is how my God came through for me. If you are not convinced of tithing, then my challenge to you is this. Take those scriptures that we've talked about today, open your Bible and have a look. And just pray and say, God, is this right? If you feel it's not for you, then you do whatever it is that you want to do with your finances. But I'm a firm believer, a firm believer that New Testament people should still be tithing because it's a way of enacting God and inviting God into our financial world. Father, I want to thank you for this morning, Lord. And uh, God, once again, I, I, I thank you for the privilege that it is to be in this building today, God, the privilege that it is to worship, the privilege that it is to hang around together. And God, we acknowledge this morning there are people in nations all around the world who would, would, would literally die to have this freedom. Yet we have it right here, God. So Father, we just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And God, I just pray for each of us here too. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, you would take those seeds of what we spoke about today and you would place it in good soil, you would water it, and you would cause it to grow and produce a crop, Father, 10, 50, 100 fold. And that, Lord, your name would be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Have a fantastic week. As I said, if you can put up with me and tolerate it, I've got one more week along these lines, but next week is, 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 is more exciting for me because it's the, the gratefulness week. But um, if we don't see you between now and then, have a great week. Have a safe week. Uh, enjoy your fellowship together, anyone in connect groups and so on that are going on. Uh, Continue your journey together of life. 
Uh, if we've got some visitors here, thanks for coming and joining us this week. If, we, if, uh, if your church gets cancelled again next week, feel free to come back. Otherwise, uh, uh, God bless you and what you guys are doing over there. Cheers.